You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today marks, well, chapter three, I guess you could say, part three, yeah, thanks, Max. Uh, part three in our series, uh, Jesus Rude and Confusing, where we're looking at the most controversial passages from the Gospels, and we're going to switch mics because this one still kind of cuts in and out. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, there we go. A little louder, please, Babo. Thank you, thank you. Um, so yeah, this is where we're looking at the most controversial and difficult to understand passages out of the Gospels where Jesus perhaps come across, comes across a little rude, maybe a little confusing. Uh, and so today we're looking at the time where he told his disciples to buy swords. And Karis read the text earlier. It's an interesting uh, story, and it's a long, kind of a long text, right? But it's, a, it's important to read the whole story. Uh, from, you know, the, the entire text in order to understand why Jesus might have instructed his disciples to buy swords. And let's, let's, let's read it again real quick. Now, just to kind of set the scene, this is Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. They're still in the upper room, reclining at the table, and he says to them, When I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, No, not a thing. He said to them, But now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, here are two, two swords. He replied, it is enough. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. When he had reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. All right, that's the end of our text this morning. And Jesus ends up going quietly with the authorities after that. But it was important to read all of that story uh, because the swords Jesus tells his disciples to buy at the beginning of the passage are the same ones that they use, namely Peter uses, at the end to cut off the, the ear of the uh, servant of the high priest. Um, and this, this sheds light on the whole story. But there's, there's, few different, there's a few different ways to read this passage. And I'm not quite sure, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure what the right reading of this passage is. I'm going to offer a few different readings of it this morning, as I think this is, this is interesting stuff. Maybe it's a little, little nerdy 
uh, you know, Bible nerd time a little bit this morning, but I think it's interesting stuff. Um, and there's a few different ways to read this. I'm going to offer you a couple and let you make up your own mind. I also, I, I want to say that this is a perfect example of what happens when your sacred text is essentially a collection of stories. You know, the Bible is really not a book full of commandments and rules and lists of do's and don'ts. It's not just a series of lectures about, you know, how to think about God and how to live. It's a collection of stories. It's a collection of narratives ranging across time and culture. You know, stories collected and, you know, compiled over the course of more than a thousand years, really. But specifically the Gospels. I mean, they are essentially a collection of stories. And the thing about stories is that they can have multiple meanings, right? That's the dangerous thing about stories, the risky thing about stories, especially if you're going to create a sacred text that you, that you want people to take as authoritative and to learn about the ways of God and what it means to be the people of God in the world. This is risky business to put it, couch it in stories. Leaves room for interpretive errors, leaves room for multiple meanings, you know. But this is wonderful, I think. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. And the fact that Jesus, our Gospels, you know, the, the most important books of the Bible are essentially stories, I think tells us something wonderful about the nature of God. You know, that we're invited into story. We're invited into a place where we're not given, like, all the directions about how to think and how to be, but instead we're invited to a place where God is asking us, you know, what does it mean to you? What, what does this mean to you? What do you think? You're invited into dialogue. You're invited to think, to reflect. You're invited to evolve. You're not, you're, not, you're not told exactly what to think and do. You're invited to a space where you have to dialogue with others. You have to dialogue with the text itself. Maybe the point of couching the word of God in stories isn't so that we would get the perfect interpretation. Maybe that's not the point at all. But that we might constantly be evolving and thinking and reflecting about what it means to be the people of God in our place, in our time. Anyway, that's, that's part of what I find so interesting about the text, and specifically like this one before us. It's, it's a story. It's a story. And there's many different ways of looking at it, and I'm going to offer a few different options here. But I want to begin by saying, or criticizing one interpretation of it, and saying that there's one particular interpretation of it that I denounce and find very problematic. And it's the one uh, that is very popular today among uh, pro-gun evangelicals. <laughs> it's this view that, you know, Jesus tells his disciples to buy swords, and that means that, you know, we as Christians should own and carry firearms, right? That the modern-day sword, Jesus is all about protecting your life and property with lethal force, and he, you know, some Christians are actually saying today that, Gun ownership is a God-given right, and they will use this text, you know, to prove it. In fact, recently, a Texas state representative in the wake of the West Texas um, shooting back in August of last year, one of, it's, it's like I had to look this up this, this week because I was like, wait, when was that? It's like there seems to be a mass shooting every week. When was this one? But in the wake of the one that took place in West Texas, I think in Odessa, um, a Texas state representative in a, in a uh, press conference said, Gun ownership is a God-given right. And they use this text as an example of that. You know, Jesus told his disciples to buy swords. We are to, you know, buy guns and carry guns as Christians. You know, that's, that's an interpretation of this text that I denounce. And frankly, you'd be hard-pressed 
to find even a conservative biblical scholar with credentials who would actually agree with that reading. That, that's a reading only really put forward by the most biased and uninformed, lay, usually laity uh, Christians today. Um, and so that interpretation I am denouncing and setting aside, but it's an important one to recognize because it's very popular today. Uh, strangely, those who are proponents of that reading omit the end of this passage where Jesus confronts Peter, tells him to put down his sword, and heals the ear of the, uh, the slave of the high priest. In fact, Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, not exactly a glowing endorsement of those who use and carry weapons, right? Uh, but that is, of course, omitted in a lot of you know, the, the evangelical pro-gun advocate readings of this. So, Here's a couple of uh, readings that I like. The, the, the first reading takes into account Jesus' stressed-out state of mind that night, right? Jesus knows what's about to come, right? It's the, he's, he, it's the Last Supper. He knows he's going to be arrested that night or believes he's about to be arrested and that he's going to be executed, right? Immediately following these words where he tells his disciples to buy swords— he goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane, right, the Mount of Olives, separates himself from his disciples, throws himself down on the ground, and begins to agonize in prayer. Sweat became like drops of blood. He's terrified, absolutely terrified, about what is to come. His pending arrest, trial, and execution. This, this is a very human picture of Jesus. Jesus is terrified. Perhaps in a moment of weakness, you know, he toyed with the idea of armed resistance. Perhaps in a moment of weakness and fear, he toyed with the idea that maybe we could fight this off, buy some swords and defend me, please. I don't know. Perhaps that's a legitimate reading of this because that is a very human picture of Jesus, right? Last week, we talked about Matthew 15 where Jesus called the Canaanite woman a dog, where Jesus uses a racial slur to call a Canaanite woman or a Gentile, a dog in first century Israel, this was a racial slur. First century Jews regarded non-Jews as, you know, like ritually unclean, kind of like other than, subhuman, dogs. But of course, Jesus has a turn of heart in that passage, right? As we talked about, he ends up healing her daughter and telling her, you have great faith. He changes his tune. Just like in this passage, I think maybe we find Jesus in a moment of profound fear and weakness, toying with the idea of armed resistance. But when the moment of truth comes and Peter lashes out with the sword, Jesus says, no more of this. And he stays true to his, to his values and principles of nonviolence. You know, heals the ear of his enemy. Heals the ear of the one who is there to arrest him. This is the Jesus we know. But we also get a picture of Jesus tormented with fear and anxiety over his pending death and arrest that night. I don't know. I think that might be a legitimate reading of this. It's interesting. Another reading that I like focuses on this part, the part where Jesus says, for I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament there. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 where it says, you know, it describes the suffering servant of the Lord. Famous passage, uh, famous chapter out of Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 12, and he, is, and he will be counted among the lawless. Many times throughout the four Gospels, many times throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus says and does things for the sake of fulfilling a prophecy. The text will say, and this was done in order to fulfill the prophecy of, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
It's as, it's as if, you know, many times throughout the story of Jesus, you know, the gospel writers themselves or Jesus, you know, uses these plot devices in order to fulfill prophecies as a way of substantiating his role, his identity as the Messiah. This is meant to communicate. When, when you read in the Gospels, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy, da-da-da, it is meant to communicate to the original Jewish audience, because the Gospels were written for primarily an original audience of Jews and some Gentiles, but it was written specifically for an audience that would have read that passage, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy of da-da-da, as a way of substantiating Jesus' identity as the Messiah. It was, it was a way of communicating, hey, listen, this is somebody that you should pay attention to. This is somebody you should listen to and follow because he is fulfilling all of these prophecies, right? He is the one, okay? So that's, that, that's part of the reason why. That's, the, I think, a main reason why it says, and this was, you know, done to fulfill the prophets, prophecy. He was counted among the lawless. Um, but what's confusing about this particular example of Jesus fulfilling a prophecy is that it's not clear it's not clear if Jesus wanted his disciples to buy swords so that this prophecy would be fulfilled, you know, that he would be counted among the lawless. In other words, the act of buying swords was a criminal act, perhaps, and that was what would make him lawless. Or perhaps, because I, I think Jesus actually was already deemed lawless. He was, you know, they're coming right now to arrest him in the story, right? The, the chief priests, they're on their way with Judas to arrest him. They already think he's lawless. I mean, the entire gospel at this point was Jesus in confrontation after confrontation with the rulers and authorities, right? Jesus is called lawless throughout the gospels because he ate and drank with sinners. Jesus is called lawless throughout the gospels because he was a friend of you know, tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus is described as lawless because he healed on the Sabbath. Jesus is described as lawless because he is criticizing constantly the, the, the priests and the Pharisees and saying that his authority comes from God and not man. I mean, that, that is why Jesus is called lawless. It's not because his disciples have a couple of swords on them. He's already called lawless. He's already thought of that way. So I, I don't think, you know, some, I, I was reading that, you know, some scholars think that Jesus had his disciples buy swords so that he might be counted among the lawless, the act of buying swords being a lawless or criminal act. No, he's already known as lawless. They're already coming after him. They don't, even, they don't know if they have swords, right? He's already lawless for the reasons that, that I list. Um, another, another way to look at this is some would say that Jesus never intended them to buy weapons, that he was, he was speaking hyperbolically when he told his disciples, you know, sell your clothes and buy, buy weapons, buy swords. It's as if he's saying, you know, this thing is about to go down. You know, it's, about, it's, it's going south tonight. You better, you better gird your loins and get ready. We're about to enter into the time of trial. You know, get ready. So, some would say Jesus was speaking hyperbolically here when he told his disciples to buy swords. Eh, there's, there's reason to think that. There's reason to say, you know, Jesus was constantly speaking in metaphor and symbolism, and his disciples were constantly misinterpreting him throughout the Gospels. I mean, many examples of this. Jesus one time told them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of Herod. And his disciples look at each other, this is from Mark, and say, is he, is he talking about bread? <laughs> you know, Jesus, of course, has to correct them. Do you still not understand the, the ways of the kingdom, right? So it's entirely possible Jesus is speaking symbolically, metaphorically, hyperbolically here, and his disciples once again taking him too literally. And it's interesting, when Jesus tells them this, couple of his disciples say, look, 
as if to open their cloak, like they said, look, we already have two. Here's a couple swords. And, and uh, Jesus says, you know, it is enough. Which, of course, you know, as we translate as Jesus is like, ah, great, perfect, yeah, that's, that's enough. We'll be okay with just two, you know. But perhaps that's a misreading. Perhaps that's a mistranslation. Maybe when Jesus said, is enough, he's saying, enough of this. You know, stop this nonsense, enough. In fact, this is exactly what he says at the end of this story, right? After Peter uses the sword, Jesus says, enough, enough of this. Stops Peter, right, from using the, the sword. and Heals the ear of the high priest, or the, the slave of the high priest, servant of the high priest, whatever. So that's another way to look at this, that Jesus is not condoning the presence of swords. He's speaking symbolically, and when they say, look, we already have two, Jesus says, enough of this nonsense. You don't get me. That's another way to look at it. So there's, there's a few different ways of reading this passage, but what I find most interesting about this text isn't really the stuff about the swords, but it's Jesus embracing his identity as, as lawless and criminal. This is fascinating to me. You know, Jesus says, this scripture must be fulfilled to me and is already being fulfilled. And he was counted among the lawless. Jesus embraced his lawless identity, his criminal identity. He didn't just do it to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah. It's not like he said to himself, well, you know, Isaiah prophesied, you know, he's going to be counted among the lawless. I guess I got to play this role. I don't really want to, but I got to do it to fulfill this prophecy. No! He absolutely embraced his lawless status, his criminal status, as integral, central to his mission, his message, his gospel. What is that about? I am fascinated by this. Again, consider why he was called lawless and godless, actually. Why was he called lawless and godless? We already listed it off. He was called lawless because he ate and drank with sinners. He was called lawless because he healed on the Sabbath. He was called lawless because he loved people more than religious rules. He was called lawless because he was a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. He was called lawless because he criticized the priests and the Pharisees and the religious authorities and said that his authority came not from men, but from God himself. And for this, he was charged and convicted of blasphemy. Right? He was arrested that night by the high priests, charged with blasphemy for saying, you know, that his authority came from on high and he denounced the authority of men, charged, convicted of blasphemy by his religion, and then handed over to the state for inciting a rebellion thereafter. And, of course, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, convicted him of sedition, crimes against the state. He was subsequently crucified between two thieves, treated as a common criminal, the state convicted him of sedition. His religion convicted him of blasphemy. You could say he was condemned by both God and man. Lawless in the eyes of God, lawless in the eyes of man, both, you could say. That's the meaning of this. According to the political and religious powers of the world, God is lawless. God is a sinner. God is a transgressor. God is a heretic. Think about that. That's the deeper meaning of this, this story. Jesus saying, I am counted among the lawless. I am lawless, according to them. This is the full meaning of what it means that Jesus was counted among the criminals, the lawless, the sinners. And to be his disciple, this is where we're going with this. 
To be his disciple means to be counted among the lawless too. Think about that. This is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, to be counted among the lawless just as he was counted among the lawless and the godless. Jesus made it clear that to follow him came at a cost. It could cost you your, your relationships with your family, your closest relationships. It could cost you your possessions. It could cost you your reputation. It could cost you your very life. Because to truly follow him means being regarded as lawless and godless, usually by those in power. How many of us here have been labeled as lawless and godless by, you know, our friends and family? I know I certainly have been. I, am, I have been told by my former pastor and boss that I am eternally lost his words, I am eternally lost because I affirm same-sex relationships and perform gay weddings. And also because I don't believe in hell. <laughs> and also because I don't think the gospel is about a conversion to a new religion, but a conversion to a way of life. That I believe in the universal and unconditional love of God. I am called lawless and godless by the old guard, by what we might call the long robes, you know, the so-called orthodox. How many of you have been called lawless and godless by friends and family in your deconstruction? Yeah, many of us have, right? But this is what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ, the one who, is, who originally was called lawless and godless. This is what it means to be his disciple. This is the cost of discipleship. I love this quote I saw online a, a few weeks ago. Maybe you saw it too. If you're not someone the church would have burned at the stake 500 years ago, are you even alive? <laughs> I love that. To put it another way, if you're not someone the church would have burned at the stake 500 years ago, how exactly are you a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified by the church, you could say, by the rulers and authorities, the most powerful institutions of the day, the religious and political powers called him lawless and godless. This is what it means to be his disciple. Anyone who loves those on the margins, anyone who criticizes the rich and powerful, anyone who fights for the poor, anyone who stands against oppressive religion, anyone who stands against an oppressive government and oppressive leaders, anyone who does this will be called lawless and godless just as Jesus was. In this way, you know, those who condemn us actually condemn themselves, just as those who condemn Jesus really condemn themselves by doing so. Those who condemn righteousness and unconditional love are, in fact, condemning themselves. So let's be, you know, let's embrace our lawlessness, I'm saying here. Let's embrace our status as godless heretics in the world's eyes, and thereby let's be true disciples of Christ. You join me in prayer. Loving God, we commit our ways unto you. Lord Jesus, fill us with the knowledge of your ways and with the power of your spirit, inspire us to lead lives like yours. In Jesus' name, your name, we pray. Amen. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. 
If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. How do you understand the gospel writer's use of the prophetic writings, and how does that influence your interpretation of this text and how they use um, the Isaiah passage? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so I do think the gospel writers um, use the Old Testament and specifically, you know, words like, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy, I believe they put them in there as plot devices quite often as a way of communicating to the original audience, again, who were first century Jews, most of them, that this Jesus of Nazareth, this historical person is of great significance and someone with authority. He is fulfilling these prophecies. And this is someone you should pay attention to, listen to, and follow. Um, So, you know, whether or not, you know, Jesus understood himself actually historically fulfilling these things, I don't know. For me, it's kind of beside the point. For me, I love the Gospels as they are, and I, I, I have suspended any concerns about the historicity of one story or another. For me, the stories themselves are powerful and inspiring, and you could say spirit-filled as is. Um, you know, I realize that's a controversial thing to say that I don't worry as to whether or not this is literal or historical because for me the story is meant to be a powerful story, meant to communicate, you know, um, the, the actual significance and meaning of the historical event and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Does that make sense? And perhaps the original gospel writers, you know, couch Jesus in these if you want to put it, these myths, these legends somewhat, as a way of communicating the depth dimension, the historical significance of his teachings, of his work, you know, of his life, of his death. Um, that comes translated over, you know, from 2,000 years ago as a miracle worker and all of these stories, right, that are powerful and, and somewhat mythological, that we shouldn't see that as a bad thing. We should see that as telling us about the, the, the true depth dimension and significance of his, of his life and teachings. Does that make sense? I realize that's controversial, but I'm answering your question honestly. That's my view. That isn't, that's not everybody's view here. And to be clear, the thing about being a part of Central is the goal is not to think and believe just like the pastor does. It's just to be honest about you know, who you are and where you're at and be on this journey together. Thanks, Kayla. Yeah, anybody else? Andrew. Um, I was, as you were talking about all of these things, I was kind of sort of re-deconstructing the story in a way uh, from a perspective of a, a storyteller, like kind of like trying to back up and think of how the gospel writers like the intent and sort of the uh, the way Jesus is being characterized. I know that theoretically, um, Christianity at large is is looking at these stories as okay. This is like kind of literally what happened. That's the popular viewpoint. But as we're talking about here, 
um, the they still fit into the genre of myth. So um, I, I'm seeing it more like disc, just as an, a disclaimer, like disconnected from that and more as a story based on the story devices, because I think we've, uh, if we grew up in the evangelical church, we all see uh, Jesus as a mentor character, like as if we're talking from the, the Greek myth faces of, of different character types in a story, it's like Jesus is this mentor and sort of one of the critiques of this type of storytelling in modern day, uh, people would call him a Mary Sue where it's, that's, if you don't know, that's a character type where like, oh, this character can do no wrong. They're just like this perfect good, uh, good as is character that just everything bad happens to them, but they just always make the right decision. But what I like about your approach to the story is it removes him from that and humanizes him into more of a story arc where he's not just a, a mentor or a Mary Sue, but he has uh, more dimensions as far as being able to change his mind and his worldview as a normal human being would. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess like that makes him, that makes me appreciate Jesus on different levels where I see him as an evolving character as opposed to this pre-designated, like just archetype of perfection. Um, I guess I just, I like that because I connect to it more because um, I see the sort of image of God as an evolving human as opposed to like this pre-designated uh, piece of perfection, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that too, obviously. Um, you know, I think it helps to remember that these stories, this Bible, comes from the Jewish tradition, the ancient Jewish tradition, and the ancient Jews had an understanding of God that was not like static and clearly defined and unchangeable, but God was someone you could argue with. God was someone you could wrestle with. I mean, the name Israel actually means one who wrestles, one who struggles with God. I mean, Jacob's name was changed to Israel because remember at the river Jabbok, he wrestled with an angel all night and over basically beat him. Right? The angel had to like stop the fight and was like, all right, you won. I give up. And I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel, one who wrestles with God. Right? Abraham argued with the Most High and convinced, you know, changed his mind, convinced him to you know, change his approach to Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? I mean, the, the ancient Jews had a very different understanding of God than even evangelicals do. I think often when you listen to uh, modern American Christians talk about you know, heroes from the Bible, you th they, they'd like to think, oh, we, they were just like us. They believed just like we do. No, 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 no. Their conception of the divine was a lot more, you know, it was a lot more of a God in process, a God whose mind could be changed, a God who was evolving, you know? And this is, of course, what we find in Jesus as well, I think. Um, you know, the, the, anyway, I don't want to preach another sermon on that, but I think, it's, I think you're right, Andrew. And I think um, we need to be open to that understanding. Yeah. All right. Yeah, somebody else? I get some few minutes left. Okay. Well, good talk, everybody. Thanks for being here. Uh, and uh, go in peace. <laughs>